Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Well, good morning, everyone. I want you to take a look at a picture with me. Check this out. Now, I don't know about you and what emotions this kind of brings up, but it's not a good one for me. Can anyone testify or agree with me? Horrible, yeah. And so, listen, if if you look at this picture, you go, what's the problem? God bless your soul. (laughs) Because God ain't blessing your house. And a dirty house is okay as long as there's joy in your heart. But I don't know about you, but I, I remember... When I uh, first got married, I remember hearing a lot, opposites attract, opposites attract. And, of course, we had one of those um, kind of early early dating years where everything seems so good to be true. And she's not in the room today, so I have some permission to say some other things. But she's volunteering in, in our kids' spaces. Um, no, seriously, if she was in the room, I'd say the same thing, of course. But I remember thinking, man, things are just so good. And, and then you get married. And then you realize it's really true. She's really nothing like me at all. What's wrong with her? Why can't she be like me, right? No, one of the areas where when Rachel and I first got married, I was like, wow, we're both kind of neat people. Like we both like order. This is, this is a good thing. And then you learn over the years that it's really not a big deal, right? And so I have grown in my ability to walk in and breathe in rooms like these. If you can't breathe in rooms like these, I understand. Um, but sometimes even Rachel, who's very orderly, very, very neat, like, like myself, and we try not to be like anal about it. But it's hard when you look into a room like this and you're like, what's wrong with my son? You know, uh, he knows where his clothes go. He puts them everywhere. But sometimes I literally walk in. I drive in the driveway. There's a sock, not two socks. There's another message for the sock monster. I don't understand why we can ever find a pair of socks. I don't understand why that happens. I'm like, take off both your socks and place them where? Somebody help me. Just hamp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just place them in the basket. Place them in your hamper. Place them somewhere. Oh, no, you can't do that. Right? You place one in the driveway. What's it doing in the driveway, man? Like, who needs socks, you know? And, and then you find the other sock in the sunroom, and then you find shorts in the living room, and then you find a shirt on the handrail going upstairs, and then you look in your, you know, your, the bedroom, and you can tell her everything's everywhere, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's hard to live with clutter, isn't it? It's one thing to have a cluttered house. Even sometimes Rachel will call me and say, hey, I know you're on your way home. I just want to tell you, I cleaned today. I know you're not going to see any evidence of it. I just want you to know I clean. I'm like, yeah, no big deal. She goes, no, it is a big deal. I cleaned for two hours, and the boys even helped me. Fifteen minutes later, it's a disaster. I'm like, hey, it's okay. It's one thing to live in a cluttered house. It's another thing to have a cluttered schedule, isn't it? And some of you, when you may pull up your phone and hit Monday, some of you might not even want to do that. Sometimes I look at my schedule, and I go, wow, when am I going to breathe? It's so easy in our culture today to move from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. In fact, America, as Pastor Chris mentioned briefly last week, and he and Jenny are away this weekend enjoying um, a a conference with a a, a different group of pastors um, around the country in Denver, Colorado. But he mentioned it briefly last week uh, as one of the ways that we're going to take this series called Spent. One of the ways that we are spent 
is with our time. And it's hard to get to a place with you and your time and your schedule and your pace where there's space and where there's margin and where there's room to breathe. One of the interesting things about Americans is the statistics that roll out year after year about Americans actually not using their vacation days. In fact, the the U.S. Travel Association uh, put together a recent study that Americans, 47% of Americans polled And in aggregate, the last eight years, 47% of them said that they did not utilize, therefore resulted in losing vacation days. Now, sometimes I say, what is wrong with you? Like, I'm in the 53%, all right? I'm going to use my vacation days that's on the calendar. But in other ways, I get it. I, 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 I totally get it. And some of you are in that boat. You say, yeah, you don't understand my workplace. So 47%, by the way, this crushes the, the study that actually looked at the 21 most economical and sophisticated countries in the world. And if I listed those 21, which I will not, you would assume, yeah, that makes sense. They're sophisticated. They're economically driven. They're politically stable, meaning they're not absolutely controlled by their government where there's a lot of bureaucracy. Well, there's always bureaucracy. That's another conversation, right? There's always bureaucracy, but they're not controlled by their government. There's an economic driven where you have the potential to get a job, to work, to make money, right? You can quit your job tomorrow, and there's a pretty good chance most of the time, not all the time, you can find another job, maybe not with the same pay. But of these 21 economically balanced driven countries, the statistics of Americans not taking their vacation crushes any other countries. In fact, last out of 21 countries in off time, not just not taking their vacation, but the amount of time that U.S. companies give to their employees is dead last by far. Now help me out. How many vacation days do typically companies and businesses start at in weeks? How many weeks? Yeah. The average of the other countries was actually 21, 21 days off. In fact, you may know in some countries, in some European countries, Australia is the same. Um, Their culture, not just their workplaces, but their cultures have habits of taking entire months off. I remember visiting in in France once and, and, uh, you know, a friend of ours, now my my sister-in-law, she said, and friends of ours said, oh, yeah, no one really works this month. I'm like, hold up, what? No one works this month? And she starts describing the culture. I'm like, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? And she's like, well, it's just a part of who we are. And part of Americans and who we are, not to say this is not true of the other 20 countries, because it is true. Some of those countries are very economically driven. They're very successful or fiscally, uh, fiscal responsible. But when you look at Americans, there's three factors that this study shows why they did not become in these three. Number one, stress. Number two, my boss. And number three, fear. The stress is natural because what happens when you leave work? Sometimes nothing. The work continues, right? You still have that work to do. And so for so many people, it's very difficult to take off because of the stress that comes along with trying to create margin and space in your schedule. And so it is easier. And I understand the 47%. It is easier not to take time off because it gives you more time, more space to get the job done. Many of you... Your work does not leave you when you leave. Is that right? Now, in certain cultures, you may say, you know what? Listen, when I'm gone, this team covers for me, 
right? Have an assistant that reads the email, which is some, true in certain work cultures. Have an assistant that takes care of my email. This person takes care of, of returning phone calls and the work that's responsible. Let's say I leave a project. These two people take care of the work during that 10-day gap. That is just not the case. In fact, of the 21 countries, America is the only one of those 21 countries where the federal government does not require employers to give their, their uh, employees vacation time. Now, the federal government, thankfully, does require certain regulated time off of sick leave, maternity leave. There are regulated things that federal and state do. But the, the government doesn't tell employers to actually give you vacation days. Now, it's up to you, right, to say, hey, how many vacation days do I get? And they say, well, none. And you say, well, I'm finding another job, right? You have that right. But that's crazy, isn't it? Of the 21 countries, 20 out of 21 say you will require a minimum vacation days where they are not to come in. This is your baseline. Not so in our culture. The other thing that happens is fear. What happens when I leave? The the perception of you being gone is difficult. And I, I feel this even in a flexible work environment as a pastor where I, I feel like, wow, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm away, maybe the assumption is that I'm not working, right? As pastors, we get funny comments. So what do you do Monday through Friday? <laughs> I've had some funny ones. So like, what's your real job? I'm like, all right, thank you for that. Did you just hear the question you just asked me, right? So in a flexible work environment, like if, if you're gone, it means you're not, it means you're not working, some of you feel that in, in high-stress environments or even in low-stress environments. You feel, when I'm gone, that people are going to think this about me. And when you leave, it's also difficult because the reality is, is that some of your bosses do not like it when you're gone. That can be a positive thing for you, too. The reason it, it, it can be a positive thing is because you're a driver, right? You're an executor. You get the job done and you feel that relationship. You feel that tension. You feel that when, when you're gone, things aren't as good. It's not you patting yourself on the back. Maybe you should pat yourself on the back. By the way, I looked at the Encounter Church volunteers this morning. Sometimes we get together, you know, in the room and, and I say, man, I, I love you. You make Encounter Church great, right? Without you, we wouldn't have Encounter Church. And so I, I told them to raise the right hand. All right, do this for me. Everybody raise your right hand, put it, put it behind your back and say, good job, me. Right? That's what I made our volunteers do, right? I made our volunteers do that this morning. Some of you know in your work environment, you're not being, you know, conceited about it. You're just saying, you know what? I I work hard. I'm valuable here. And it's hard for me to leave. I get that. Those contribute to a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety. And I know those 47% would love to take time off. But when when you leave, it's easy to grab the, the cell phone. And work, why? Because you have more time to, right? You pull up the cell phone. Sometimes I'll tell Rachel, I'll pull up my phone at night. I'm like, I just need someone to tell me to stop working. So I say, Rachel. She's like, what? She's in another room. Tell me to stop working. Stop working right now. I'm like, okay, I just need someone to tell me, right? It's just easy at night to say, now I got 27 emails since I left work. I wonder if there's anything important. It's hard to shut it off, isn't it? It's hard to create that time and so margin. So what happens to us? We get spent. The demand, the time, and I just used workplace examples. My goodness, family. What what happens when you leave work? The family, the the expectations, the sports, school, the invitations. In the world of even in being a pastor in ministry, the opportunities uh, to connect with people, the meetings, going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And you get home and you have time to breathe and all you can think about is what the next day 
holds. What does this result in? It actually results in a tremendous amount of sadness and depression and anxiety where you feel like you can't breathe. About two years ago, I um, took a flight, was headed home to Boston and was sitting on a plane. I had never kind of experienced this. Um, I'm a self-confessed crybaby. Um, you know, you play My Heart Will Go On, and I just go back to 1999 and being ashamed. I'm like, I remember. People make fun of that movie, but, man, it got me. I know people were like, Leo, just jump on the float. There's plenty of room, right? What's wrong with you? I'm like, man, get on there. Get on, get on it. I love a good song, a good story. And about two years ago, I, I found my, I opened up the word. I was reading the Bible on a flight, and um, I just felt sad. And I was like, you know, the Bible's supposed to, like, encourage me and inspire me, but I was reading the story about a man who was tired. And I felt that. And I remember, like, tears started rolling down my face, and I thought, what's wrong with me? I'm not listening to my heart will go on or anything. Like, there's no music to inspire me. And I just start, I just felt sad. And after some inspection, I think I was just tired. I called Chris, the pastor, here, and I said, man, I just need a couple of days. I don't know what I'm going to do. I just need a couple of days to sleep, to breathe, to take some time off. And I remember the guy beside me who was jacked, right? I sit beside large human beings on planes. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Every time I sit down, I'm like, the guy that's coming on is going to be like the next bodybuilder. This guy was huge. He was like, hey, bro, you all right? <laughs> I'm like, what a pansy, you know what I'm saying? Not him, me, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, man, just think I'm tired. Now, hey, it was encouraging for him to actually ask about me, right? And it, it, this does this to us. It, it gets us spent. And maybe it's not in tears. Maybe it's not in sadness for you. Maybe it's the opposite, frustration and anger and tension in our lives because we are so, so tired. I remember reading a sabbatical story in universities and colleges often will give professors, sometimes tenured professors, an extended leave um, of six months off a sabbatical. In the world of ministry, sometimes pastors have extended times off. And the, the intention of those extended times off are, are very unique, the university to a church. But the reason that a lot of people don't take sabbaticals, though they are required in university settings and often not required, certainly in ministry, they're optional. A lot of even pastoral research said that their sabbatical was extremely stressful. You know why? The phone calls kept coming, right? It's more stressful to actually deal with problems 500 miles away than it is to deal with problems at home. So it's hard, isn't it? We go... And we go, and we go, and we go without rest. Let me tell you about the word sabbatical. It comes from God. The Hebrew word for sabbatical actually means to stop. And so many of you have heard the word Sabbath, right? We recognize the Sabbath. In fact, when God's people left Egypt, this is recorded in Exodus chapter 20. When God's people left Egypt, he started establishing some ground rules for their new world, right? A new town, a new leader, new places, new jobs, no more slavery. They were free to work. They were free. That when, they, when they actually made a crop, guess what? They got to sell it and keep the money. They got to buy and trade. They were in a new world, right? New day for, for the Israelites. And God set some ground rules. Number one, he said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Pretty self-explanatory, right? He was establishing his godship with his people. Number two, he said, do not make any idols, right? 
Don't make these little statutes and bow down to them. Don't make these ornaments and think that they are the image of God. Like, don't make any, any image, any physical image um, that represents me because basically nothing can. Number three was do not use my name in vain, right? Keep the Lord's name as holy and as regard. And we hear that, we hear that certainly in our culture today with people saying God's name and they're not talking about him or to him, but they use that in even profane language. Number four was this, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Um, commandments five through 10 are pretty short. You should not murder, right? You should not So they're pretty short. The largest verbiage of God's initial commands is around this idea of the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 20, he said, you should keep the Sabbath because it is holy unto the Lord. Now, what was interesting is that he told them why, right? Some of these in our brains are pretty straightforward when he says, do not murder. Do not take life in your own hands. That God is the God of birth and he's the God that controls death, right? So don't take life in your own hands. We get that without reading the Ten Commandments that we should not kill another person. But he says, remember the Sabbath day for God worked six days to create the world and then he did what? He rested. That God made the world and then he rested. There's a work and a rest rhythm. Now, this is a commandment. A commandment. And so literally, it's interesting because there's, there's already existing language, but God was putting new meaning to their language. Literally, what he would have said was, stop working. Stop working. You ever heard that from someone that loves you? Some of your spouses may say that. Stop working. That's why I say, Rachel, tell me to put my phone down. I just need someone to tell me to stop working because I love having a zero inbox, right? <laughs> Either you laugh because you have 1,200 unread emails or you're a maniac like me and you have zero, right? And so I, like, it's easy for me guys to even walk into church and have a brief, just for a space of eight seconds to go, what if I had new emails? I'm like, what am I doing, right? Literally the Sabbath word in the Hebrew means to rest or to stop from your work. It's a commandment and there's a consequence for not listening to that commandment. And part of that consequence is we don't have any breathing room to think about God. We don't have any room to stop and breathe, and we don't have any room to stop and care for ourselves. I remember a friend of mine growing up, um, I'd hang out with their family and some, and I remember them being Christian, and we, I grew up in a Christian home too, but their Christian rules were very different than our Christian rules, right? As you flesh out faith, it can look different from home to home based on convictions. And I remember um, um, the, the, the dad saying to the mom, hey, you know we don't wash clothes on Sunday. And I just remember laughing about that. I'm like, serious? You know, you don't, there's something wrong with that? You don't wash clothes on Sunday? But as I look back, I, I know what it was. He was just wanting to honor the Sabbath. Now, he wasn't crazy or anal about it or, 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 or fundamental about it. He just said, listen, let's not do anything for a day. Don't worry about the dishes, right? Don't worry about the clothes. Just sit down. Sit down. Mary and Martha, a conversation with Jesus, even in the scripture where one was talking to Jesus and one was busy in the kitchen, guess what Jesus said? It's better for you to talk to me than to prepare the food, right? In that story. Like it's better to just sit down. Even when you have someone over, what do you do? We're busy caring for, working, preparing, and not enjoying. So God literally in the fourth, the fourth out of the Ten Commandments, stop working and reserve that day to honor the Lord. 
Even when you look up the word um, Sabbath, you know what you'll see because Christians don't adhere to it because it's not a fundamental rule. You you don't come into church necessarily growing up and saying, listen, every Sunday in this culture, you can't wash clothes. You can't go out to eat because that's, you know, soliciting someone else's work. Like there's just aren't those fundamental rules in Christian. In in fact, if you look it up and like Wikipedia, you understand, look, reading about the history of the word Sabbath, you'll see a Jewish tradition. And then it will say that some Christians observe it. Some Christians, right? Um, but the reality is, is that we should. The, the Sabbath is a New Testament teaching as well. If we don't rest, it comes with a consequence. This is God's idea for you to rest. And so our hope in these next few moments is that you would learn to create margin. And that that margin would give you the rest that you need. The physical rest, the mental rest, the emotional rest, so that you can be all that God created and designed you to be. We're going to read from Psalm chapter 90 today, the 90th Psalm, and we're going to see three things. And the first one is this. Recognize, these are the three things that you have to do. Recognize that God is sovereign over time. Now, these three things I'm going to share with you today will help you shift your mindset, your view, even your your worldview, your biblical worldview, what the Bible says about it. They will change everything. If you see it the way God sees it, the first is recognizing that God is sovereign over time. Sovereign is a a biblical word, both in the Hebrew, which is written in the Old Testament, right? And the Greek, which is the language of the New Testament. This word gives us the notion, the idea, the teaching that God is um, in control, that God is supreme, that he has authority over God is sovereign over time. What if you really believe that, like to the core of your heart, that God controlled time? Look at Psalm uh, chapter 90, verse 1. These verses will be on the screen as well as in the app that Rachel mentioned just a few moments ago. Look at this verse. The verses say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting You are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone by or like a watch in the night. Literally, he says, from generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting, you have always been. It's the belief in Yahweh God, Yahweh, that Old Testament word. It's a belief in God that before even he created the world, like he existed. That there wasn't a beginning to God and there wasn't, there's not going to be an end to him that he is eternal. He's not bound by time, which is why the writer of this psalm says a thousand years in your sight is like a day that's gone by or like a watch in the night. And sometimes nights go by quickly, don't they? Because we're sleeping. But even if you had a watch in the night, which is this idea that if you were put on watch to watch over your city, If you believe someone was going to attack your home and we said, hey, Josh is responsible today. You know what? He's going to he's going to be sitting in the front yard making sure no one comes. Time flies by. The sun's going to come up quick. Right. He says a thousand years in your sight is like the watch in the night or it's like a day that's just gone by another day and another day and another day. Man, does time fly by. But recognizing that God is sovereign over time leads to this. Number two, it leads to a recognition about the limitation of our time. Recognizing that your time is limited will change your time. Psalm 90, 
uh, verse 5 right here says this, Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Now they're like, man, that's a verse to read uh, when you come to church. They are, uh, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. This is a reminder that God is sovereign over our lives, not just our time, but the time that we have every single day from the day that you were born to the day that you die, that God is sovereign over that. What happens when people pass away? Where do they go? Where's the service? It's typically at a church, right? Not always, but I'd say the vast, vast majority of the time. And who leads that time? generally a pastor, right? Why? Because there's this belief, not just in this culture, but I'm saying, listen, around the world, that there's something more than the time that we have. Why, why do we pray? Why do we talk about Jesus and what Jesus did for us on the cross? Why? Because we believe that there's a hope even beyond this life, that Jesus Christ died. He just did not live. I saw an article a couple of days ago about the historical facts of Jesus. Like even if you don't believe, written from a a, a non-Christian standpoint, even if you don't believe that he rose again from the dead, which is a marker of the power that he was not just a man, but he was God in the flesh, the historical facts of Jesus are remarkable. But even in that, we believe that God is sovereign, not just over time, but that your time is limited. And why? When someone passes away, do we talk about Jesus? Because we really do believe that there's life beyond this life, that there's life beyond death. But recognizing that it's limited, what does he say? In the morning it springs up, and by the end of the day, it's gone. Any yard workers out there? Anyone like to work in the yard? All right, great, like one hand. All right. Man, keeping the, keeping the companies busy, uh, busy today. Right? I, I love yard work. I, you know, for sometimes I hear people describe how much they hate yard work and sweating. I'm like, I like those two things, right? I like to get outside. Um, I sometimes forget to put a hat on my head. That gets me in trouble, as you can imagine, from the glow of the stage, the sun. I like getting in the sun. I like a little sunburn. I like to get sweat. I, I just like it. And I like it when the grass is green. But then you leave for vacation, right? And then you come back and you're like, Really? All that work for nothing, it's so easy. And this is what the, the, the psalmist is saying. That's how quickly life is. And one day it's green. The next day looks like you haven't watered it in years. It's so easy. And one day it's like a flower that buds out. And the next day the heat scorches it and it's gone. Life is fleeting, isn't it? And a, recogni- a recognition that your, your, your time is limited changes everything. The third thing is this. Recognize how to number our days recognizing how to number our days. Before I read this next psalm, a fun little question for you that you can think about. If you really could know the day that you would die, would you want to know it? Now, the room is going to be split here. I heard some quick no's, but there'd be some yeses too, right? Now, the reason that there would be some yeses, <laughs> I don't know. I think I would know. I think that would just make me paranoid. Anybody? Like, you know, because if, if you really found out, you're like, man, you got four days. You're like, crap, I shouldn't have asked. This is going to stink. Then you have to make those phone calls. Hey, man, this guy just told me I got four more days, right? And then the fifth day, you're like, hey, that guy was lying. You know, <laughs> you call him back, right? But the recognition, like, if you could number your days, the psalmist is about to tell us something about numbering them. Like, numbering them would give us wisdom, wouldn't it? To know it, to actually know it would help us to live in a different way. Look at what he says in verse 10. Our days may come to 70 or 80 if 
our strength endures. Isn't that interesting, just that part? They may come to 70 or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and will fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Some of you say 70 or 80. It's like, oh, that's pretty good. I got some time left, you know. But man, how quickly does it come? The writer here is saying, hey, you might, you might get 70 years. You might get 80 if, if you last that long, right? But man, is it going to fly? Man, does it go by quickly? And he says, yep, the best of them are trouble and sorrow. That's kind of depressing when you see the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. You're like, the best days are trouble? And this is saying this, listen, if you had some good days, absolutely. If you had some tough days, yes. But even the best of your life so far, say you say, you know, I'm 47 years old and man, I've had a good life. Even your best days still had struggle, did they not? Even the good times, they're not perfect, right? Those good moments that you have, be it the birth of a child, you're holding that child, you're like, nothing could go wrong. And then you go home and they don't sleep, right? That's kind of this idea. You know, and, and sometimes you look at your life and you, you see the tragedy in other people's lives and you're like, man, it's pretty good. I haven't dealt with what they've dealt with. And you're, you're humbly grateful that you haven't faced what they've faced. But even you look at your life and the, and the very best things of your life still have struggle. I often thank God for, for my family and extended family. And I know everyone has a crazy uncle, right? And when you start telling stories, like everybody's got a crazy uncle, right? They're like, man, I don't have a crazy uncle. I bet you got somebody else in your life that's crazy, right? Like no family's perfect, no person's perfect. Everyone has trouble and everyone has sorrow and life is fast. And so this is what the psalmist says. He says, God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Now, this isn't God telling you how many days you have left. But literally this Hebrew word here, when he says teach, you could replace that for the English word to instruct or to correct or to guide. Literally, if you said, God, instruct me, correct me, guide me to live as if my days are numbered. And living as if your days are numbered would change the decisions that you make. When I give Levi, my seven-year-old, money and he goes shopping, it is a painful patient experience because he counts every dollar, bro. Listen, listen, if he has $24, he knows that $3.99 is four and he knows, how much did I say? 24? Did I say 24? I didn't want to look an idiot, do math wrong. Good. Yeah. Let's say, uh, how much money did I give him? What if I said 19 and four? You're like, what's the difference? I don't know the difference. If I gave him $24 and he spent four, he'd be like, I got 20 left. I'm like, I know I can do the math. And he's walking. Ooh, this is $1. Ooh, do I want that? I don't think I want that. Put that back. I'm like, no, you want that. Hurry, we got to go, you know? And so to number that, to number financially, to really know how much money you have in the bank causes you to be more cautious and it causes you to be more aware. The psalmist says, God, I know that you're sovereign over time. And then what we've seen in this psalm, I know that you're sovereign over life and I know that you are in control even over death. And I know that my days are numbered, other psalms would say. And I know that my time is limited. So God, correct me, teach me, guide me to live and to number my days. And to live as if today were the last day. To live as if this week were the last week. To live as if this month were the last month. And potentially, 
to live as this year would be the last year. I'm telling you, we all have this sense inside of us that we're going to live a long time, don't we? But we also also have this sense. Now, whether it comes up in you every day or once a year, you also have this innate sense in you that you don't have much time left. And I don't mean that you're 77 years old or it doesn't matter if you're 77 or 27 because the 27-year-old looks and says, wow, I thought I was 17 yesterday, right? The one that's about to turn 40, you know, fairly soon says, wow, am I halfway finished with this thing? The psalmist would say, if you're lucky, right? You might have 70 years, you might have 80 years, and every generation, every day that passes, it just flies by. And you're like, wow, where's time? Time is fleeting. It's like the grass that grows, and by the end of the day, the sun comes and scorches, and it's, and it's gone. But what if you numbered your days? What if you numbered your days? Teaching you to number your days changes how you live. Bronnie Ware, who's an Australian, uh, now author, writer, speaker, um, an international uh, figure that's traveled the world. She's known for uh, many of her books and writings. She was a, a nurse, and she was a nurse that typically cared for people in the last 12 weeks of their life. And during the last 12 weeks of her life, as she continued um, as, as being a nurse, she began to get more bold about asking them questions. And so she would literally look to people and say, what do you regret? That's tough. Now, listen, I've, I've been in as a pastor. I've been in rooms where we know that the person is going to pass away very soon maybe minutes, uh, maybe days. I don't know if I'd ever have the, um, the, 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 the fortitude uh, to ask that question, right? Imagine that question. Hey, what do you regret? Like, really? I mean, you, you can imagine the person looking back at you going, really, you're going to ask me that? But as someone, in this, as a nurse, Bronnie, as, as, as someone who watches death every single day, she knows it's going to happen, and so she asks. And she actually tells the story that people were always willing to, um, willing to answer. Why do you think that is? They're willing to answer because they knew they were about to die. And they're willing to answer because they're already reflecting on their life. Now, that could come with some disappointment. It could come with bitterness. It could come with anger, depression. But people were always willing to answer. She actually wrote a book um, called The Five Biggest Regrets. And she wrote this based on her life and the research of what people actually said. You know what number one was? It's an interesting um, summary that I read on the book. And so I could say, go read the book. I didn't read the book. I read a PDF summary of it, about four pages long. But here's number one. The number one regret was I wish I had not worked so hard. It was the, it was the fact that, that, that work took so much time. I'm like, hey, I'd like to be able to say that, right, where I think that, but I just can't leave at four because I want to leave at four, right? But this idea that you work so hard that you have no margin was person after person after person after person. She said this came from 30-year-olds just as quick as it would come from a 75-year-old. This came from people that grew up during the, uh, the, the different eras of, of history in Australia, of some that were more economically strong than others. In the American world, you could say this could come from someone that grew up in, the, in World War I or World War II or during the days of Vietnam, during the different um, ups and downs of, of our economy. She said it didn't matter what they grew up, rich or poor. It didn't matter their race. It didn't matter their background. It didn't matter if they were making $50,000 a year or millionaires. They all said, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Well, why was her next question? Why? Because of what it took away. Not that I, I had to work. I had to make money, right, because of what it took away. 
So questions today practically that I really want us to think about. Now, I want you to answer these. Now, maybe in some ways you're already beginning to answer these two questions. You're already beginning to answer these two questions by the nature of this conversation. You think, how, how much longer do I have? What if I only had seven days? I know that, I believe, maybe you would say this, I believe that God's sovereign over time, but I don't know, how does that change what I do? Or maybe you even reflect on your schedule. You think, how can, I, how can I shift this schedule? How can I change this schedule? Like, what changes do I need to make? I have two questions for you. Now, I want you to answer these questions. Write down the questions. Remember them. Take notes, whatever it is. Get a little notepad. Get a journal. Maybe the notes section of your phone. As Chris said a couple of weeks ago, he has an Evernote file of thousands and thousands. I think, he's gonna, I think Chris Causey is going to break the Evernote server one day. Um, his Evernote gives me gives me hives. It's it's uh, crazy, right? But maybe you use Evernote. If it doesn't work, blame Chris Causey. But maybe you take a note, take a note somewhere, and write these two questions down. I want you to answer these two questions. The first one is this: What must I start doing in order to use my time more wisely? There's something. And by the way, I wrote down three things this week on that question. Three things that it literally I pictured. Brownie Ware looking to me as a nurse, taking care of me, knowing that I'm about to die. And I read a story yesterday of a, someone coming down with cancer at my age, and then, you know, 60 days later they pass away. There's an article that she actually wrote on her deathbed about her two regrets, and it shocked me. You know why? Because two out of the three were things that I wrote down. She is my age, had the same regrets. And so you know what I said? I need to do this right now, like tomorrow. Or like today, what are those things that if this were your last day that you need to do, write it down, make a plan, go after it. Go after it. But here's another question that I want you to answer as well. What must I stop doing? What must I stop doing in order to use my time more effectively? Your stop doing list might actually help your start doing list. Why? Because it creates margin. It helps you to be spent a little less. It actually will open up time in your schedule. It actually will allow you to do the things that you want to do and to say the things that you need to say because your time is moving fast. Now, in a lot of practical ways, when folks are asked, hey, listen, let's make your to-do list, right? Anybody to-do list people, right? To-do list, you're like, you're like, all right, got my list, I'm going to check it off. A good day is when I check it off, right? Whatever's on the list, I'm going to make sure I check it off. But what if you made a stop doing list? That's what I want you to do. What are those things that you'd like to stop doing? Now, talk to your spouse or your significant others, right, if you think uh, work is number one, right? And like, I just want to stop working. All right, well, let's think about that. Let's think about the next step. Let's think, you know, um, then maybe you start finding another job, Right? But you have to think about how to utilize your time more effectively. If you begin to answer these questions, what's going to happen is a recognition, is a further, deeper recognition that God is sovereign over time and that your days are short. And if you number them, you could begin to live with better decisions and fewer regrets. And if you're a Christian, I want to invite you to this idea that God created the Sabbath. He made it for you. He designed you to rest. I think it's phenomenal that even the Bible gives this description that God worked and then he rested. I'm like, you don't need rest, right? You're God. 
What do you need rest for? And he said, now go and do the same thing. Work hard and then stop. Because if you don't, you're going to end up on an airplane beside a jacked guy, embarrassed, that he's asking you, what's wrong, bro? Right? Are you okay? Did someone die? You know? That's what's going to happen. If you don't rest, you're going to get tired. And it's going to lead to emptiness inside of your heart. And maybe if, if this is you and depending on where you are in your faith journey, if you're not at a place where you're like, I'm not sure about, about God and I'm not sure about where I stand with him and what my faith is in him, I would ask you to consider and to remember today that God loves you and that God designed you and that God designed this world and he designed us. I love this. He designed you to work. He designed you to know him. He designed you to understand that there's more to life than just what we would call the rat race, right? Get up, go to work, go home, cook a meal. If you're lucky, kids are like, what are you having for dinner tonight? Whatever you want, open the fridge, you know? And then you go to sleep and you you do it again. He designed you for more than that. You know what he designed you for? He designed you for a Sabbath rest. He designed you to do what we rarely do in my home. Yesterday, you know what was on the agenda? nothing and it was good just to breathe a little bit right breathing room doesn't happen unless you rest and God designed you for it God designed you for that why because that rest ultimately turns your heart and mind away from yourself away from your email (laughs) away from your to-do list away from sports and allows you to reflect on your life and ultimately point you to the God who made the Sabbath and even he says that the Sabbath was made for him, that people would recognize God. And so why do people often on the Sabbath, what do they do? They carve out time to go to church, right? They carve out time for space for him. That rest allows you to stop your life, stop working, stop moving, and just breathe. Breathe in, breathe out, let it go. Because God created you for it. And so this week, answer that question. Even before you make your start list, which was the first question, maybe you make that stop list. Maybe you make those two or three things that you're like, you know what? This is a time sucker, right? Um, This is taking away my time. I need to stop doing this. I told my wife real quick last night on Facebook, I said, you know why sometimes I don't like Facebook? You never check it off your list. You just scroll and scroll and scroll. You're like, I think I've been scrolling for like 12 minutes here. I, I just like to check things off a list. Anybody like me? Right? You just scroll and scroll, like mindless. Nothing's wrong with Facebook, okay? But like sometimes we just need to breathe. We just need to breathe and recognize that God created you to rest. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.